Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, and welcome. This is Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Father John and my good friend Joe Doman here Hi. with you. Welcome back. This is actually the first of the three major topic requests that we have, which none of none of which we've ever done. Which we're going to do, though. All three. We are going to do all three. So what are the three? The other two are, well, this one's purgatory. Purgatory. The other two are non-Catholics who okay. go, go to heaven. Uh, so no salvation outside of the church. How does that work? Good question. Uh, and homosexuality. Gay those, marriage, all that stuff. Those are the three. Those are the three. So we are finally getting to one, purgatory. We are actually responding to your request. I know. Doesn't that sound horrible? That doesn't give people much confidence. Nah, we've in our... done other ones. Yeah, well, they're going to ask you the way. They know this is the most unprofessional thing out there. And they're still listening. So, mm. yeah. So when I say purgatory, what do you think most people hear? Like, what do you, what do most, what's most people's impressions Fire. of purgatory? No, I mean, like, if you're a Catholic in the pews and we talk about purgatory, I don't know. What do, I, I don't even know what, pe- what do people think purgatory is. Or I know non-Catholics are like, yeah, they made this thing up if they even have heard of it before. Well, the first thing is that I think most people presume that everybody's going to heaven. We talked about this with Balthazar's whole thing in hell. Right. So purgatory is like, eh, that's cute. You know, it's like a stopping point. It's like a truck stop in Cartersville, Georgia. <laughs> where right. I was for eight hours Which yesterday. You've experienced. Uh, another topic. We were driving back from Orlando. And we got mm-hmm. stuck there. But um, I don't think they. I don't think people think about it much. I know. Well, I mean, what do you think? Well, I think it sounded like a question that you had the answer to. Well, I'm always. I always <laughs> want to try to include you in these discussions. You know. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I think okay. For one thing, it's not uh, some thing that the Catholic Church has kind of made up in the Middle Ages to pay for, I don't know, St. Peter's Basilica or something like that. So we could sell indulgences. It works. So we had to come up with this big system and purgatory, and you could give us money, and we'll pray for people who are in purgatory. And And we'll build awesome churches. And we'll build some sweet churches. That's right. So that's what it's, I mean, I think, honestly, I think some some Protestant, Luther, I mean, he kind of, you know, threw purgatory out of the question because he said, we just made this up. Uh, This is not in scripture. Uh, There's no reason for it. Um, so, so the question, Joe, is, is it in Scripture? Uh, that is a question. We will get to that. Okay. But the other thing it's not, too, which I think is would speak more to most Catholics in the pews. I know I kind of thought about this when I was being raised. You always hear about heaven and hell and purgatory. These right. are kind of the three things, you know? Three options. Uh, and that's really not the case. It's really kind of like hell and heaven and purgatory. Like, they're kind of together. Yeah. Like, purgatory isn't its own separate destination that you're going to spend for the rest of eternity. It's not like you're not really good enough to go to heaven, and you're not really bad enough to go to hell, so we're just kind of throw you in this middle state where you kind of have to suffer, but, you know, it's not that. It's not hell, though. You won't be there forever. Purgatory is really like the anteroom to heaven. It's like the foyer, the washroom. I don't know. It's like you're you're on the threshold of heaven. Like, everybody in purgatory is... On their way to heaven. It's kind of like as you go in, you might have to go through purgatory. Which it's also when people, if you ask people in Colorado, what, what's the first thing you think of when you think of purgatory? You think of that great ski resort down by Telluride and Durango. Is there one called purgatory? Purgatory. You really? haven't lived here long enough. I've never been to Telluride. Sorry, oh, I'm not as bourgeois as <laughs> some of us. Yes, indeed. Yeah, indeed. We all know that's not true. Uh, um, the, uh, yeah, but purgatory, I, I think that's actually a good way of putting it. It's like connected to. Yeah, it, I, I think it's much more helpful to see it as. I wonder how much of the threefold distinction comes from Dante's comedy. I thought about that too. Dante's Divine Comedy. Which Purgatory is awesome in, in Dante's com- uh, 
um, Divine Comedy. Divine Comedy. Like, it's this mountain, which is sweet. Mm-hmm. But it's seven steepest. Levels. Seven different levels. It's st- <laughs> <laughs> it's steepest on this uh, at the bottom. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, just because I read about it today. You read about it today? Mm-hmm. Dang it. Yeah. I was going to impress you. But it's so cool. But it's so awesome. Why is that cool? Because it's hardest at first. The purgative way, right? Purification of yourself is hardest at first. That's why when people start out, it's the hardest thing. I do like that. I didn't know that. Oh, now you like that. Now now I think it's awesome. We'll continue with your podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, let's, okay. So let's talk about what the church actually says. Can we just say first off, this is the first time ever that any of us, (laughs) he (laughs) he has a typed Hand out a full page of notes. I, I've never seen this before in the podcast history. That's right. It, it's actually true. This is the first time ever we've... That's not true. We've written some notes before. This is the first time we've typed it up. And that was just because I was feeling ambitious. That's impressive. And you didn't have class this week. And because I wanted to quote a number of things that I didn't feel like flipping through other books Good and call. being annoying. Well, so. I'm very excited to learn on this one. So. All right. So the catechism. Let's just start there. Start there. This is what the church says. Okay. When, in its section on purgatory, it says, All who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly pur- imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So basically, people who die in friendship with God, who aren't condemned to hell, but are still imperfect. Uh, they have this place of purification. So what does this mean, basically? There's two, I think the easiest way to think about this is that there's two realities at work. Um, one is that a lot of people die who are not perfected. You know, they're not perfect in love. They don't love God perfectly. If I died today, I would not no. go straight to, I know, it's hard to believe, I know, right? Um, so that's one reality. People die and they're imperfect. Uh, and the second reality is that in heaven, everybody's going to be perfect. And so purgatory kind of is a natural consequence to this. It's this kind of medial state between death and the glory of heaven and our final state where we'll all be perfected, uh, where we undergo some sort of transformation or purification or perfection, process of perfecting us. Uh, That's kind of the basic way to think about heaven or think about purgatory. It's like a training ground. It's a training ground for heaven. It's it's something that's making us capable of heaven. I had a... um when my grandfather died about, uh, gosh, it was probably about 10 years ago, I remember I had my uncle, Uncle Mark, asked me, like, is he in heaven? And it was just like, ooh, you know. And I have, like, yeah. sound bites to work with. And basically mm-hmm. what I said to him is I said, everything in heaven is perfect. And there is a place that has to perfect, so to speak, um, things that are on their way to heaven. Right. But it has to be perfected. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Papa Hut, my grandfather, I said, and his dad, I said, he's on his way to perfection, but he probably wasn't perfect. So there's that's right some kind of form, some kind of purification that's taking place. That was about the quickest and that's, I could give him. Hey, that's, that's right on. I mean, that's actually in scripture too. You're talking about scripture. In Revelation, what is it? I have it written down here somewhere. 21, 27. It talks about all those in heaven who have been perfected. Huh. You know, so we know that in heaven we we are in a perfect state. Right. And, but we know, you know, it doesn't take, any, it doesn't take Gene, uh, Einstein to know that we're not perfected when we die, you know? So uh, the one thing to think about too when it comes to purgatory is that it's not like some sort of external punishment for our sins. Uh, I think this is the way it's been talked about some way, how how language affects how we think about something, even though when it's it's trying to get at something, but it's not, it's misinterpreted. So we've talked about um, purgatory as like a paying off the debt. And and I think Tertullian is one of those, because this goes back super far. It's not like we made this up in the Middle Ages. Tertullian was talking about this. Cyprian talked about 
uh, place of purification before entering the glories of heaven. Uh, but it's not like, you know, Jesus has that parable where he says, you know, he will be thrown into prison and will not get out until he pays the last penny. Right. And some Tertullian is one who interpreted that as like some sort of external purification, external, uh, punishment, you know, like, oh, you know, you've lied this many times, kind of St. Peter up there with his list of all the things we've done wrong. And this merits you, I don't know, 16 million years in purgatory. There right. you go. You have to kind of like pay this off. And that's not what we're talking about. because, And that's what, I think that's been one of the critiques of the church from Luther and the Protestants that you are actually, and this is them saying to the Catholic church, you are actually um, diminishing the sacrifice of Christ because his blood, one drop of his blood pays the entire debt, you know, there's no debt that we have to pay for our sins. The debt is right. paid. So purgatory is not some sort of external punishment that's kind of arbitrary. I think Ratzinger uses the phrase like some sort of super worldly concentration camp where right. we have to suffer. Right. Uh, but what it is, and this is from Ratzinger, he has a great book on uh, eschatology, which John has next to him where he's going to throw I, me all sorts of curveballs. Well, I was from going it. to, but I, um, I couldn't find it in time. Okay, so this is Ratzinger's definition from that book, which I thought was great. He says... Uh, purgatory is not an external punishment. It is an inwardly necessary process of transformation in which a person becomes capable of Christ, capable of God, and thus capable of unity with the whole communion of saints. So it's an inwardly necessary process of transformation in which we become capable of relationship, which I think actually makes a lot of sense to people. I mean, uh, at least it makes a lot of sense to me that um, right now I'm actually not capable of the kind of intimacy that we will experience in heaven, the kind of intimacy that we will have with the communion of saints. I, Joe Doman, as I sit here today and do this podcast, I'm just not capable of that. I mean, if we think about heaven as uh, more than anything else, it's not a place or a state, but it's a relationship. It's an encounter with the other, with the Trinitarian persons and us, uh, humanity and all the elect being wrapped up into that. Um, It's a place of relationship. And, uh, Right now, I have all sorts of things. I have my selfishness, my ego, my, you know, kind of my petty desires, the ways that I can, I don't know, uh, choose myself over the other uh, that keep me from the kind of intimacy heaven's experience. So I, there's, and my whole life, I mean, any married person, I don't know, I, thought, I was thinking about my parents when I did this podcast because my parents have been married. How long have your parents been married? Oh, gosh, don't put me in the spot here. 1980, so we're going on 23 years this summer. 23 years? No, no. Well, you're no, wait. Year. 33. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, wow. Is that right? 33 I hope years. it's not 23 because you're 29. That would be awkward. 33 <laughs> years. Yeah, right? Oh, my, my gosh. My parents are coming up on their 50th in like five years. Isn't that crazy? Uh, this year is their 45th anniversary. You're uh, like their 15th child, though, so it's not that surprising. Yeah, I'm their ninth. Okay. Um, well, the anyway, last point was really good. Well, I'm, I'm trying to build on that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay, so I'm thinking about, you know, a couple like my parents who've been married for 45 years. Uh, when they first got married, you know, I'm sure they were really in love and they're, you know, ready to give themselves to each other completely. But there are ways that they were not capable of the kind of intimacy that a couple that's been married like 70 years is capable of. And their whole life, my mom will talk about this with me, like how how there is like, you know, in, in heaven, we're all supposed to become, we're all going to be one in Christ, right. you know? And in marriage, it's like the two become one. It's a, it's a movement of two persons to become one flesh. Uh, and that's like, I mean, to become one flesh, that happens, you know, with consummation, with the birth of a child. Um, but to become truly one of heart and mind is a long process because my mom and my dad, when they got married, were two different per- people. Uh, and they're all kind of like two rocks that need to fit together. And there's parts that need to be chipped away. Uh, and there's a process of unification, uh, a process that 
transforms them and makes them capable of true intimacy, that's painful. And anybody who's been married knows that when you get married after the honeymoon stage wears off, there's going to be times where you are annoyed, where you have to die to yourself, you have to sacrifice. And it's not just arbitrary sacrifice and punishment for the heck. It's all for the sake of intimacy and for the sake of relationship and for the sake of your marriage and ultimately your union. And so when we talk about purgatory, I feel like that's the best analogy I can think of on a worldly level uh, to speak about the relationship of heaven. Purgatory is that process. And that we, we're in that process right now. Anybody who's Christian and is seeking to give themselves to Christ and, and receive his grace completely knows that that's not completely easy. And there's a process of purification that happens as Christ transforms us to become saints. But, you know, if I die today, I'm not there. Uh, and so purgatory is a stage in between where I am made it's a tra- inward process of transformation where I'm made capable of relationship with right. Christ, with God, with the communion of saints, with everybody else who's there. Because there's all sorts of people who are going to be in heaven who I know that I have beefs with right now. You know, <laughs> like I need, there's ways that we need to die. So, right. There's many comments you've made on this podcast insulting me that you will need to suffer pain for. That is right. I think to uh, the last penny is to paid. the last penny is paid. Several things. The um, over temporalizing of purgatory mm. is one thing that we've been purified of. Yes. I think the second thing is focusing on purgatory as a state instead of a place. Yeah. Um, which is good. Locating the soul. It's like you go here and you're in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just makes Protestants kind of real nervous, you know? Yeah. Um, instead of focusing on the, the transformation of the soul in order to take on that intimacy in a deeper way. And here's the third point. And this is the quote I was looking for. The root of the Christian doctrine of purgatory is the Christological grace of penance. Hmm. The root of the Christian doctrine of purgatory is the Christological grace of penance. That's from a guy named Joseph Ratzinger. Now, uh, what's interesting Pope is that Benedict. the loss of the notion of penance is the t- is tied directly to the loss of purgatory. Like, we don't understand what penance is. Mm-hmm. Purgatory follows by an inner necessity from the idea of penance. It's totally true. The idea of a constant readiness for reform, which marks the forgiven sinner. Bam, there it is. That's a great point. Okay, so oh, yeah. what do you do? <laughs> so what do you do when you're in confession and someone confesses blah 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 and you give them like a hail mary like right. what are, what are you expecting them to understand their penance to I'm be I'm expecting them to say you know what this hail mary is going to make me desire constant readiness for reform which is marked by me a forgiven sinner mm-hmm. I right, don't make fun of Father Ralph Drendel for giving that penance Yeah and I've given that penance many times Part of it is the priest has to do penance for every penitent he does that's kind right. of intense But I think the heart of that point is that just like purgatory isn't, penance in the sacrament of confession and any penance is not some sort of punishment that we're trying to put upon right. ourselves for our sins. It's like, just to remind you how much you suck. <laughs> exactly. Go do this. Remember when you did all this crap? <laughs> well, you got to pay, boy. Like, I'm going to absolve you, but if you don't do this, I'm going to be really upset. <laughs> That's right. No, it's not that. It's actually, uh, it's supposed to be ordered to making us more capable of relationship, of love, of self-gift. I mean, like if... Uh, for just to illustrate this, I guess, like, okay, if a man committed... Forgets his wife's birthday. Forgets his wife's birthday. Polly forgets Maura's birthday. Okay, Polly. Polly, my brother. Let's start with that. Polly, I love you, but you know what? <laughs> March 17th, Maura's birthday. I remember it. You better not but forget you don't, it. You know what? Sometimes you might not forget it. You might not remember it. So when Paul forgets Maura's birthday, uh, and I don't know, and he decides says, to go I'm bowling sorry. with his buddies. I'm or sorry, baby. The bowling team needed me. Exactly. So a, a good penance for that wouldn't just be like, okay, Mora's like, hey, you, you did that to me. You know what? Well, you got to go, I don't know, rake the leaves of the whole neighborhood or something. <laughs> I don't know. Give some external penance. No, 
a penance is supposed to be ordered towards the towards the sin. I guess that's a sin uh, for getting your wife's birthday. I'm sure any married man would say, yeah, that's definitely that's a sin. Definitely a sin. <laughs> um, uh, so a penance would be like, oh, you know, not that more would give him penance. Surprise but her with flowers. Surprise her with flowers. Get some chocolates. Hey, surprise. Like I, got a baby, I got a babysitter. We're going out on a date. That's a great penance. You know, right. it's something that's ordered to the, not just a punishment, but it's a repair of the relationship. So Constant but, readiness for reform. Isn't that beautiful? Hmm. That that's the disposition because I have for been forgiven because my wife said I forgive you, Polly. You're an idiot, right? Which he's not. He would never ever. He's a great ever, husband. Ever forgive? He's so birthday. proud of himself right now. Listen, he is. Yeah, that's great. But if he was, and mm-hmm. if he did, and his wife forgives him, then he says, "Wow, I've been forgiven. The experience of this forgiveness is so amazing that I want to be ready to be reformed at all moments, and I want to be spontaneous in bringing about right uh, um, these." Moments of a- and acts of love. Mm-hmm. So here's the question: In purgatory, then, what is this? Wh- where's this punishment coming? What not punishment? Where's this pro- process of transformation coming from? Like, what's the fire? You know? Are you setting me up here to the fires answer of this? How are the fires of purgatory different than the fires of hell? I, I think the question. only difference between the fire of heaven, the fire of purgatory, and the fire of hell, the the painful fires of the bo- of all of them, in some way, with the exception of heaven is because from Hebrews we know God is a consuming fire. Yes. There it is. And it's all about the state of one's soul, hmm. that the way that that fire affects him. It's either the fire of intimate and perfect desirous love. Right. It's either the fire of purgation, preparing me for intimacy, or it's the fire of absolute horror mm-hmm. and suffering because I have rejected this and I suffer it now right. for eternity. Absolutely. And that's it. I mean, right Father there. Father Brady wrote his thesis on that, our friend. Yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah, the great. I, did I think you I read it? Did you read it? Uh, no, but I went to his thesis presentation. So did I, and I didn't read it either. <laughs> but we know what it was about. But we know what it was about. That's right. No, that's true. The fires of purgatory, the painfulness, is not like something God's doing to us. It's actually the presence, the encounter with Christ Himself, or the encounter with the Lord itself. We experience as painful, uh, almost like uh, I don't know, going outside from a dark room into a, into a bright day, right. uh, and the sun hurts your eyes. You know. It's not because the sun is being exceptionally harsh to you. It's because your eyes aren't a place to receive the light. Right. Uh, and that's obviously a, a very faint analogy to this. I mean, something similar, I guess. I mean, coming back to our marriage thing, if someone was to, if someone lived a complete bachelor lifestyle and was completely selfish and independent with his money, loved his freedom, the thought of getting married and having a wife that he was going to commit to for the rest of his life would be horrifying. Horrifying. Horrible. Absolutely hell. horrifying. It would be, that would be hell, yes. you know? And maybe someone who... Loved his freedom, but really saw how marriage was good, and he really did desire that. But he still had all the selfishness. Marriage is kind of like purgatory, yeah. you know. And then when you've been married for forty-five years, you, you know, start to realize, you know what, this is good. This is kind of like heaven, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's similar to that. It's it's uh, it, the the process of purification uh, isn't. You know, we're we are we are the variable in the equation. God is the constant, where He is His love and His fire. That God is consuming fire, like you said from Hebrews. Uh, that's what's painful for us as we kind of are transformed and made ready to and made capable of heaven, you know, which is a beautiful thing. I, I think, love this. I, qu- I think know. the I think the marriage analogy is very interesting because why do you say I see a lot of men who marriage is purgative, right? They kind of get into it, they love the girl, but it it just changes them and they become good men and they and they yeah. have their kids and all of a sudden they become 
fathers. Oh, kids are the better analogy. Kids are the kicker, I think. And for other guys, it becomes hell. And they run from it, and then they even end up eventually just, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get away from it as fast as possible. That's right. Yeah, and it's wild. So, yeah, it's going to be, uh, let's see, my brother's getting real serious with this girl. Shh. Oh, I this, didn't say anything? Uh, I right. didn't say anything. You're, now, uh, You're a horrible brother. Tell me about St. Catherine of Genoa. What do you know about her? Nothing. I just saw your notes. Oh, you saw that. Oh, she just has a cool quote. I wasn't going to read that one, but I will anyway. It's pretty good. Uh, She says this about purgatory, just just to help to flesh it out more. She says, although purgatory is incomparably painful uh, because we see all the horror of our own sins. It's not an interesting thing about purgatory is going to be incomparably painful um, because we're going to see the horror of our own sins. Yet it is incomparably joyful because God is with us there and we are learning to endure his light, his truth. It's also joyful because all those in purgatory have already passed the particular judgment, so the judgment of them individually, and are assured of their eventual entrance into heaven. Uh, So just an interesting thing that is very painful. It's also very joyful. This quote I think is sweet. This is from John Vianney. Uh, He says this, just to put everything in perspective, heaven, hell, purgatory. He says, paradise, heaven, paradise is in the heart of the perfect, who are truly united to our Lord. Hell is in the heart of that of the impious, impious. Purgatory is in the souls that are not yet dead to themselves. Hmm. So he's not even speaking of after you're dead. He says, right now, right now on earth, heaven is in your heart of, of the, those who are perfect and truly united with the Lord. Hell is in your heart if you are one of the impious, you know, who totally rejects. Yeah. Uh, and purgatory is in the souls right here that are not yet dead <laughs> to themselves. Uh, so pious. No, it's true, man. And you know, no, whatever. no, no. We're not trying to be pious. No, but it's just true. I mean, this yeah, is like because this is this is it's a veil of tears, you know. Uh, well, we either suffer our purgatory now or we're gonna do it afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, quick question because this is important. Well, I got a question for you too. No, this is I got a question for you. All right. Where is it in scriptures? Where do we just admit, do, like Second seriously? Maccabees, where does this come from? Second Maccabees. <laughs> that was a great. I uh, just did that. What what year was that in re- in wrestling though? Second Maccabees. Oh, that was, I don't know, middle school? Yeah. Okay, anyways, tell us. Tell us. Okay, no, you got it. Second Maccabees. So condescending. (laughs) All right, Second Maccabees. I've never learned apologetics. Second Maccabees, give it to me. I don't know it. Pray for the dead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is ridiculous. Okay, so, yeah, Second Maccabees. This is, okay, you talk about where does this idea of praying for the dead, uh, the dead going through this process of purification, where does this come from? Is this something we made up in the Middle Ages? No, it goes back to the church fathers. Even before that, it goes back to late, uh, right before Christ, Judaism, the in the Maccabees. Right. So Judas Maccabeus is going around uh, with seeing the soldiers who have fallen in war, and he sees some of the Israelites uh, who have fallen, who have these pagan amulets on, like they've stolen something. Right. Uh, and so he's like, "Wow, they've like apostatized. They've they've left the faith. Yet they're and they're dead now." And so he says, "Well, what do you do?" We say, and he and he says he teaches everybody to pray for the dead. Uh, he says, pray for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So my question, why would he be saying to pray for the dead if the dead were definitely in hell for eternity or the dead were definitely already in heaven? You know, Amen. to pray for them implies that, okay, there's there maybe there's some state they're in where they might go to heaven. Uh, they might be purified from their sins and made worthy of. Bam. Yeah. Your logic is so tight. Impeccable. Impeccable. Yeah. Here's my question for you. Mm-hmm. Dante's Mount of purgatory is based on seven levels, seven deadly sins. Yeah. If the steepest is at the bottom, think of like Buffalo Mountain when you're driving down I-70 yeah. and you're coming into Silverthorne, you know that mountain? Mm-hmm. It's real steep on the sides and then it narrows off all the way on the top. Right. That's what I think of when I think of Mount of Purgatory. Interesting. What do you think is the first level, the steepest level at the bottom? So 
Dante goes through hell and then he comes out and he looks at the stars and he gets on this boat and he goes across the water and he comes to the Mount of Purgatory. What do you think the first phase is? The first of the seven deadly sins. Pride. Pride. How'd you know that? Because I just read it today. I told you. Dang, you're good. I, I'm not good. I just, my Isn't that memory is two hours so long. So Dante, he has a specific way because hell is a descent into the center mm. and pride is at the center. But the first of the purgative ways all the way to the summit is... Pride. pride. And if I'm not mistaken, lust is at the top. Lust is at the last one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So I guess what I'm saying is that the steepest and the most difficult, the most arduous purification in the soul oh. is around pride. But for so many people, they feel like their feelings around lust are yeah. their greatest. But that's actually the final purification. Mm-hmm. Which get, is funny because the pride in your heart. It's true because I've, I've, heard, I've heard priests say, uh, the Lord, you know, you might be struggling with lust, but... You know, if imagine if if the if the Lord let you just kind of you know be totally free from lust, how much that would fuel your pride? Right, you'd be and a Pharisee, up, and maybe the Lord allows you to suffer this because you were prideful. Yeah, so get Which after is, the doesn't pride. Doesn't that freak you out? Not freak you out, but like I'm like, it's oh gosh, crazy. how do you overcome pride? Isn't that like, doesn't that feel kind of impossible? I mean, like there are ways that you can be totally just completely arrogant and prideful. Right, but I'm like, I remember Father Garansky, a good priest friend of ours, um, would always be like. Yeah, there's really not much you can do for pride. Because anything you try to do, it's just going to make you more it's prideful. It's going to make you prideful. You know, so you just kind of have to suffer that and like ask for the Lord's to give you the grace of it is. It is the hardest. And to know that, actually, this is why purgatory freaking is awesome. Okay, let me just go off for a second here. So two things, you know. One thing, because there's purgatory, pray for the dead. Do penance for the dead. Pray for your friends, your family's deceased. Second thing, get excited. Because I'm like, I don't know, for those who truly love the Lord and truly want to give themselves to him and love him perfectly and are sorrowful because you encounter your own freaking weakness all the time. And you're like, man, I'm a real a-hole and I wish I wasn't because I want to love those I love perfectly. It makes me really excited to know that there's going to be a, t- a place, a time where the Lord's actually just going to, I mean, I, I want to be purified now before if I can. Um, but it, it gives me such confidence and hope that like in heaven, I will be a saint and that's and not just like have some status of sainthood, right? But it's like no, I will be as and when I look at the saints who I who I have a particular devotion to, you know, John Vianney or Therese or Saint Joseph or Our Lady, and I I I am just marvel and and blown away by their beauty and their goodness, and I'm like you know like the, I mean from literature we just saw Les Mis, like the bishop in Les Mis, oh, yeah. even though you don't know him well, or even Valjean by the end of his life, and just the beauty of this man. Who's 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 loved and who's given him, but he has to suffer, and who has suffered immensely. Uh, and I'm like, man, I I desire, I desire that, Lord. I totally desire that. And it gives me great hope to know that, like, yeah, this is like, God is just and He is merciful, and that is no more clearly shown than in just the doctrine of purgatory, right. which is just a beautiful doctrine. So I I, I hate when people belittle it like yes. it's something that like oh we Catholics just add all the stuff on. It's like no, you know what? This kind of logically follows from the rest of Revelation. And sure, the word purgatory is not in scriptures, just like the word, I don't know, Trinity or incarnation. Oh, uh, snap. But they are, they're there. I mean, right. they're there implicitly, and, and purgatory is no different. And it's been there from the beginning of the church. We've been talking about this. So to all you haters out there. Haters going to hate. <laughs> haters going to hate. That's all we're saying. No, but uh, purgatory is actually awesome. So I hope this was helpful. It was. This is very good. There you go. Uh, this is, you know, the, the questions you ask the most for 
are the ones we're most nervous to do because they demand the most. Not that we don't want to do them, but it's like if we do them, we want to do them pretty well. And we we know we're going to speak heresy at times, and but we know that Nick Blaha, Father Nick Blaha, will catch us on that. That's right. But purgatory. Before you go, purgatory. Just so you know, was declared a dogma of the church officially at Florence and at Trent. So it's not an option. This is just part of the faith part of being Catholic so it's beautiful so anyway catholicstuffpodcast at gmail.com on Facebook Catholic Stuff Podcast never on Twitter we'll see you next week hopefully (laughs) it's becoming a mantra hopefully see you